welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, welcome along to Gateway this morning. Thrilled that you're here with us. Uh, we feel very privileged this morning to have Dr. Crystal Kurgis and her husband Mark with us. Uh, Crystal is an international speaker, uh, an author, um, a C.S. Lewis scholar, and um, we are just thrilled to have her come and speak to, speak to us this morning, and Crystal is going to be here with us again this evening. When I heard that Crystal was a, a C.S. Lewis scholar, I specifically asked Alan if she would speak um, along those lines, and I'm sorry, it was very selfish of me. Uh, but C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and I thought, well, if you don't like C.S. Lewis, then, you know, there's a few spare seats, lie yourself down, just rest. The rest of us are going to thoroughly enjoy it. Um, Chris was just joking with me. Uh, Glenn was putting the, um, the microphone on Crystal this morning, and, and he said, it might just take us a little longer this morning. Glenn has a problem to deal with. And I said, what's that? And he said, here. Crystal, you are most welcome. Would you please give her a warm welcome? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Glenn, am I on? Oh, yes, so on. Oh, it's so wonderful to be here. Um, it, it feels odd to hear that Crystal is an international speaker, but after being here, I think it's true because I'm someplace new. First of all, New Zealand is lovely. Thank you for, uh, it's not like you actually personally shared your country with us, but it feels that way. We have gotten to see some really beautiful places while we've been here. We did go to Hobbiton, um, which for me feels like a one-time visit because you can't actually go in the holes, which would have been the point if you could go inside and see what was there. But when we went to Hobbiton and get this little flyer, I just thought this was really interesting. They were talking about how they found it and they talked about the farm, and it said this bucolic setting for the Shire, home of the hobbits, including Bag End, which is where Bilbo and Frodo Baggins lived, in case you didn't know, was right there, and it was just waiting for the magical director's touch. Quote, or translation, God made a pretty beautiful spot, and then Peter Jackson came along and made it really beautiful. I thought that was kind of interesting because I think it was beautiful all by itself without Peter Jackson doing anything. Um, I do love C.S. Lewis. I'm not going to teach about C.S. Lewis this morning, though I would happily do that, but I am going to talk about him a little bit. Before I do that, though, I don't know where the musicians went, but Lauren, first of all, the music was lovely this morning. My sons are all musicians, so I love watching the drummer and the guitar player, all everybody, um, and thinking about my boys. But your bass player, Dale, what? Wow. Um, he's not just the boom, boom, boom. But, um, right, there's all this stuff going on. He probably knows who Victor Wooten is, if you don't, and he's a guy who makes the bass a solo instrument. Uh, I can't see anybody out here, and I don't know if I'd recognize if I could, but Dale, if you're in here, you are so good. Not better than the other people in the band, I'm not comparing, but I'm just saying, <laughs> you are really good, and it was a joy to watch you, and when you get to watch somebody love something and do something well that God gifted them at, it's a delight. That was a sermon in and of itself. So 
Um, this morning, I'm going to look at a story that I think is very familiar, and actually, two of the songs today lead into it perfectly. But first, I want to talk about books, because books are my favorite thing. Uh, I have a, an office that has eight seven-foot bookshelves, and then in our living room, there's two more eight-foot bookshelves with glass doors, and there's bookshelves in the dining room, and there's bookshelves in the entryway, and there's bookshelves in the bathrooms, which might be the most important place. And in my office, I've, I've tried to count the number of books. It's pretty difficult, so I just measure how many linear feet, because we still do feet inches in America. I measure linear feet. I kind of average how many there are. And so I have between four and 5,000 books, and I love each one of them as though they were my own child. I love my books. On the way here, I was visiting with Alan and Jeanette Vink, who have hosted us, and we were sort of talking about how life doesn't last forever, and I told her that the moment I became aware of my own mortality was a moment that I woke up and realized that I don't have enough years left in my life to reread all of my favorite books. And that was the reality of what, that was when I realized that I was old. What a weird way to realize that. There were a lot of other things that should have um, given that away to me, but that was the big kicker for me. But I do love books, and I love good first lines of books. Uh, when you open it and you read the first line and you think, this is my book, I'm gonna love this. Um, all children except one grow up. First line from Peter Pan. Uh, this one, I, I would assume this is familiar to some people in this room this morning. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Does that, anybody recognize that? Pride and Prejudice, mm, Jane Austen, she's brilliant. Brilliant author. Uh, this is a really great first line. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, great first line. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And if you can't figure out what that's from, just from the line itself, then there's deep issues we need to talk about in here. It's from <laughs> The Hobbit. And here is one of the best first lines in any book ever, and fortunately for us this morning, it comes from a C.S. Lewis book. And it says this. There was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> that first line, you know that we're gonna be talking about a very interesting boy, right? That's the first line of Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is the third book in the Chronicles of Narnia, and if you are young enough to think that it's a later book than that, we can talk afterwards about why it is the third book, and only the third book, and there's no room for discussion on that. I would actually call that a doctrine. Voyage of the Dawn Treader is book number three, okay? And actually, there's a recent letter that was discovered that proves that, but we can talk about that later. Um, if you've not read Voyage of the Dawn Treader, if you've seen the movie, just try and set all of that aside for a moment, okay? I like to say that you should never judge a book by its movie. So if you've seen Voyage of the Dawn Treader, just set that aside, and if you've never read it, you might not know who Eustace Clarence Scrub is. But in just the first few pages, readers discover that Eustace Clarence Scrub, who usually goes by Scrub, which feels right, thinks he is smarter, better, wiser, and more wonderful than anyone else. And he's not afraid to say it, if you know him. 
Um, that's what he thinks, and he says it quite often, but you soon learn that Eustace Clarence Scrub cannot be trusted. He is not a reliable judge of who he is. And we learn from the narrator and from the things that happen in the book that actually Eustace is just sulky. He sulks all the time. Is sulky a word that you use in, yeah, he pouts, he's a powder. He liked bossing and bullying other people. He had absolutely no friends. That's a shocker, right? He was singularly discourteous, which is what Reepicheep, the valiant sort of King Arthurian mouse, says about him. This is a great line. Eustace was a record stinker. That's what one of his cousins said. And he was. He was a record stinker. And then maybe most importantly of all, we find out that Eustace had read only the wrong kinds of books. They had a lot to say about exports and imports and governments and drains, but they were weak on dragons. And it's dangerous to not know about dragons. It really, really is. Tolkien says it does not do to leave a dragon out of your calculations, especially if you live near to him. And we all live near to dragons. If dragons are an image of evil, which in, actually in today's world they aren't. Have you noticed that in all the books today, dragons are your pets and you can tame them? I think that that might have a really interesting message about what we've tried to do with evil in this most recent generation. But really, dragons are the bad guys. And there's dragons all around us outside. We shouldn't walk around being afraid of dragons all the time, but we should be aware of them. And there are dragons inside of us. There is an inner dragon, I think, in all of us. And if we're not aware of dragons and don't know about them, we are all at grave risk of being stalked and hunted down and crisped and toasted and then eventually eaten by a dragon. Or maybe even becoming a dragon ourselves, which is exactly what happened to Eustace. I'm not gonna give the whole story away because you should all read it, but Eustace becomes a dragon, a real dragon. And actually, there's a picture from the book. Can you show us the picture? That's Eustace, he's green, and he has purple wings. That's the color that dragons really are. He becomes a real dragon, and the reality is, is that what he looks like on the outside now is who he is on the inside. Thank you, you can take that down. He becomes a dragon, and he's miserable because for the first time in his life, he realizes that he misses people. He never even used to like people, and now he misses people. He came to realize that it was very dreary being a dragon. And it is, isn't it? Uh, there are many times in my life when I, it's like a third person out here watching Crystal be sulky or critical or complainy, and the person looking at her does not enjoy being with her. <laughs> And I realize that it's very dreary being a dragon. And then there's this beautiful scene in the book which might be the most beautiful literary image of redemption. And it's when Aslan, who is the talking lion in Narnia, who is actually Christ himself, we learn that in one of the books. Narnia is a, a land that C.S. Lewis envisioned and thought, well, there's only one God, so even in Narnia, but if the people in Narnia, which aren't people, they're animals, if the animals need to be redeemed, how would that happen? Well, it would be a lion. He would come as a lion, 
fully lion and fully God. So Aslan the lion has an encounter with Eustace, and Eustace is undragoned. Aslan digs deeply into the dragon's skin with his claw. Eustace says, it almost killed me, it hurt so much. Dug in deeply, this is after Eustace tried to undragon himself three times. Aslan peels in, digs in, peels off the dragon skin, the dirty, horrible dragon skin, throws Eustace into a pool and cleans him off, and then he puts new clothes on him and he's a boy again. There is a story in scripture that is very much like that story, believe it or not, and I suspect that the story in scripture might have been a little bit of an influence for that scene in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's a very familiar story. I suspect that most of us in here have heard it, read it, um, even maybe read it to our nieces and nephews or our children, if we have children or our grandchildren. We usually call it the story of the prodigal son, which is sort of an unfortunate title because the story is not about the son. Um, the story is about the dad, and this would be the title that I would offer. I do a lot of research into medieval and Renaissance literature, and books in that time period had titles that filled the whole front page of the book. This would be my suggestion for a good title for that story. A tale of an outrageously and audaciously prodigal and misbehaving father who was entirely and absolutely and completely unfair in dealing with his record stinker of a son. That would be the title. It's in Luke 15, and I would like to read the story to you and talk about it a little bit more. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people, and there are some religious leaders there, so he's talking to two different audiences, and that's always good to know because depending on who Jesus is talking to, he frames his message to speak to those people specifically. So if there are people who are just learning about him in the crowd, and people who've been following him for a while, and people who don't like him very much in the crowd, he's gonna manage to talk to all of them. That's really good communication, by the way, right there. I'm gonna take a drink of water really quickly. He is, um, he's trying to make a point, and he tells a story, a, a, a series of three stories. And I love that Jesus was a storyteller. It makes me, it gives me evidence and proof that stories are powerful. Not just the stories that Jesus told, but stories that we tell each other, stories that we read. And this is the third story. So Jesus, he's got three audiences, remember? So he's gonna tell the same message a few different ways. And this is the longest one of all. So to illustrate his point further, Jesus told the crowd this story. A man had two sons. That is a great first line. That's a great first line because you're either gonna go, this doesn't sound like a story, or you're going to go, if there's a man and two sons, something is gonna happen and it's probably not gonna be good. A man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, actually he told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Um, in the culture in which Jesus lived, 
Estates got divided between sons, not quite evenly. Usually the older son got more, and a second son and younger sons would get less, but they all got something. And it was possible, and it was okay, to give your sons their estate before you died, but if you did that, it was by your choice. Okay, a father could say, I would like you to have part of your estate now and give it to you. But until that time, it was the father's estate still. This father is alive. (laughs) And so it's his money. It's his land. All of the stuff that he has is his. And his younger son says, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Uh, I think you could translate that this way. If you were dead, I could have my money. And I'd really like to have my money, but you're not dead. So let's just pretend you're dead and have you give me my money anyway. Because my life would be better if you were dead and I could have my money. Which is a horrible way to start a conversation with your parent, by the way. That's not going to go anywhere well. But if the younger son represents humanity, which he does, we are very good at telling God what to do, aren't we? God, this is how it would be great. It's not usually how you do it, but this is how I'd like you to do it, so please do it this way. And the father doesn't say what he should have said, which was, you are the rudest person I've ever met, and not only am I not going to give you my estate, but I am excommunicating you from the family because clearly you don't want to be here anymore. That's what the dad should have said and had every right to say. That wouldn't have been rude on his part. It wouldn't have been mean. It just would have been rational. That would have been a rational response. But that's not what it says. It says, so the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons, which means his older son hadn't yet gotten his share of the estate either. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings, which really were his father's belongings that he demanded. So he packed all of his belongings and he moved to a distant land meaning not only did he wish that his father was dead and want his money, but he also wanted to get as far away as possible from where his father still lived. That's the condition of this son on the inside. And really, if you read the whole context of the story, what Jesus is saying, that's the condition of all human beings. We look at our father, God, and say, it really would be a lot better if I could just have control of this. So let's just pretend that you don't exist and I'll take control of this and then we get as far away from him as we can. That's what the younger son did. So a few days later, the younger son packed all of his belongings, I would put scare quotes around that, his belongings, and he moved to a distant land And while he was there, this is what the grown-up, mature, I know what's best for me, give me my share, this is how he proved that he was worthy of that. He wasted all of his money in wild living. And good storytellers say something like wild living 
and then leave it there and let you fill in the rest. Because that might be all kinds of things. He wasted all of his money in wild living. And there's a natural consequence that happens when you waste your money or you waste your life or you waste the love that God has given you. About the time that his money ran out, a great famine came over the entire land and the young son began to starve. He thought that if he just had the stuff from his father, things would be great, but now he's really in need and life is not great. A great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He had to persuade a local farmer to hire him. He had to beg or convince someone to hire him. That probably took him down a few notches in, in his view of who he was, right? He'd been someone who had everything and demanded and got all that stuff, and now he has to persuade and beg someone to give him a job. He persuaded a local pig farmer to hire him, and that pig farmer sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. To feed the pigs in the fields. Um, Mark and I, we live in Indiana. A couple people have asked us while we've been here, so what's in Indiana? And I stop for a minute and I think, well, we're in Indiana, and cornfields, got a lot of cornfields in Indiana. Uh, the Indy 500, there's a big race in Indiana. There's a couple big universities, a lot of corn, a lot of cornfields, <laughs> a lot of farmers, and there's pig farmers. And one young woman and her brother, actually we've known their family for a long time, they have pig farms. And pig farms today in Indiana are not like these pig farms. These pigs live in climate-controlled barns, where someone delivers their food to them every day. Um, they also aren't running around in the beautiful countryside, but in terms of temperature and cleanliness, it's quite nice. I suppose if you're a pig, I don't know. Um, I've been there and I've been in those pig farms. Even though they're climate controlled and clean, they reek and you can hardly breathe. But in the fields, it's not climate controlled. There's no shelter to keep you safe from the weather or from hyenas or jackals or lions or whatever's out there, it's actually quite dangerous and it's quite dirty and it's quite uncomfortable and I would imagine it's quite lonely just being one person with a bunch of pigs. He's fallen quite far, I think. He was so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. Even garbage, I'm sorry, even rubbish now looked good to him. Someone who had demanded good wealth from his father was now craving what essentially is rubbish. That's a big change. But no one gave him anything to eat. He'd had a generous father who'd unfairly given him many things, but no one gave him anything to eat. When he finally came to his senses, 
Actually, the Greek would be better translated, when he finally came to himself. And that might be the best middle line of a story ever. Because that's what happened to Eustace. When Eustace finally came to himself, he realized that it was very dreary being a dragon and that he missed people. This boy, this son, when he finally came to himself, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have plenty of food, in fact they've got food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'm dying of hunger. The boy who I don't know how long ago had said to his dad, let's just pretend you've died so I can have my stuff. Now he's dying of hunger. So this is what I'm gonna do. Here's his new plan. His first plan was terrible. I'm gonna get my stuff from my dad. The second plan, he's at least trying to be thoughtful. Here's his second plan. I'm gonna go home to my dad and I'm gonna say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. And maybe for the first time ever, he was being honest about himself. Because he's right. He was no longer worthy of being called the son of his dad. Because he had done the unthinkable and disrespected him and dishonored him and been rude to his face and then gone far away. So he's telling the truth. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please just take me on as a hired servant. He actually set his sights much higher than he had any right to, but much lower than he should have if he'd really known his father well. So, he turned around to head home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, and this is a great story because it doesn't tell us how far, it can be as far as you want it to be, however far any one of us has left home, that's the distance that this story is about. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, meaning his father had been watching for him. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to him. I loved the song we sang about him running to us. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to him. And then this is what the father should have said. The first time the son came and said, I want my stuff, the father should have said, you are horrible. You are terribly rude and disrespectful, and so go. Not only do you not get any of the stuff that you think, but I'm not even gonna let you stay here, go. But the dad didn't say that. This is what the dad should have said now. So he's got a son coming back who was, had been disrespectful. And he's got a son coming back who'd been living in a field with pigs for who knows how long. So what his father should have said, what any rational person would have said is, oh my gosh, you stink. You're filthy, you're disgusting, you clearly haven't brushed your hair for a while, you haven't washed yourself, and I could smell you coming from a long way off. Turn around and go back where you came from. That would have been fair. Or he could have said, really glad you decided to come home, but I can't breathe around you, so go find a place to clean off, and after you've cleaned off, then let's talk. 
okay? But right now, I'm going to pass out because you reek to high heaven. You are a stench. That's what the dad should have said because that was true, right? If he was being truthful. But he didn't. It says he embraced him and he kissed him. Okay. Um, The sun stinks. The sun is covered with field mud and pig mud and pig other stuff. He's, He's a mess. And the father embraced him and kissed him. How do we even make sense of that? I have three sons who are grown now. My oldest son came out of the womb being his own person from day one. And that is his greatest strength and also his greatest challenge. And when child number two came along, I, was, I really had my hands full at that point. And I don't remember what was going on on this given day, but something was going on and I was in clean clothes and had showered for maybe the first time in two years. I'm not sure. But I'm in good shape. And I think that I needed to be somewhere on time, so I'm also working really far in advance because it's hard for me to get places on time. So I've got one newborn baby in the car seat ready to go. I'm in clean clothes. I had the oldest son ready to go, and it's time to go, and I can't find him, which isn't unheard of with this child. So I looked in all the good and normal hiding places of his. I looked under the beds. I looked under the baby's crib. I looked in the pantry closet, which was big. I looked in the tub behind the shower curtain. I looked in all the cupboards. I went downstairs and I looked behind the furnace because that actually was a normal hiding place. I couldn't find him in any of the hiding places. And now I'm getting a little irritated. Sometimes moms do that. We hide it really well. I'm getting a little irritated and I'm probably going to be late. And what makes me mad about that is that I was going to prove to people that I didn't have to be late. So he's ruining my newfound, you know, good on-time um, personality, so I'm, I'm mad. And then I'm a little scared, actually, because he's only two. And where is he if he's not in any of the normal hiding places? Well, it had rained the night before quite hard. We had a driveway that was not paved. It was mud. It was dirt rained hard, and for some reason, I looked out the kitchen window, which is not where I would normally look. And by the way, there was a rule that you don't go outside without telling mom or dad and having us with you. So I look out the kitchen window, and this is what I see. (laughs) Right? I think he might have thought, oh, look, they built me a swimming pool. Um, Only it's not a swimming pool, and it's not just a puddle, it's mud because you rain on dirt and you get mud. And he is either trying to float <laughs> or he's practicing you know, the front crawl, I don't know, but he, you can't see his face here, I'll show you his face in a minute, but he's clearly having a blast, laying in the mud. So now I laugh a little, because how can you not? And then I went to grab what was an old-fashioned camera back then, you know, a 35 millimeter, and I'm taking time to focus. I mean, what is that about? My kid is outside, I'm late, and I'm gonna focus my camera. And because God knew that 30 years later I was gonna use this story all the time when I preached. So I take a picture of this, and then I knock on the window to get his attention, and this is what I see, uh, which he's not in any rush to go anywhere, do a close-up, look at the face. It's hard to see, but 
there's mud all over and I think there's a worm right here. Cause you know, they come out in the, in the water. He's disgusting. He's so dirty. You can take that down. He's so dirty. So I'm mad because now there's, besides being late, there's other things I have to take care of. And it, it actually would have been fair, it wouldn't have been good, but it would have been fair for me to open the door and say, you know that we have a rule that you're not supposed to go outside without asking, and you did, so go find another family and see if they'll give you a shower. <laughs> I mean, that would have been fair, but very, very mean. Um, but I can't tell him, look, you gotta clean up and you can't come inside because you're gonna bring all the dirt in with you, so figure out how you're gonna clean up and then come in and then we're gonna go. None of those were options. None of those were options. There was really one option besides leaving him out there for the rest of his life. The only other option was for me to go outside in my clean clothes, mind you, and pick him up, because if I let him come in just running free, the dirt's gonna get everywhere, pick him up and hold him tightly and bring him to the shower and clean him off and put clean clothes on him. That's really the only option for a mom. And when I picked him up, guess what happened to my clean clothes? They were covered with mud and grass and worm doo-doo and whatever else was going on in that pile of stuff. It got all over me. Now, I'm a human being, so I kind of deserved that, but I didn't deserve that. When the father embraces and kisses his son, up to this point, I feel like the father in this story is a beautiful picture of our heavenly father. But our heavenly father and our Savior are the same God. And in this moment, this is Jesus. And when he is hanging on the cross with his arms stretched wide, whether we know it or not, his arms are wrapped around each one of us. And all of the stink and the mud and the smears and the sin and the selfishness and the pain that we've experienced and the pain that we've inflicted, all of that gets all over him. He who never sinned became sin for us, says Paul. Peter says he bore our sins in his body when he was on the cross so that we could be freed from sin. He bore our sin and he became our sin. And that is the most unfair thing that has ever happened in the history of humanity. Often people will talk to believers about how unfair God is. There's no way I'm gonna believe in God because if there's a God, he's the most unfair thing ever. I mean, people who are good suffer. People who are bad don't suffer. People are starving. People don't have homes and they talk about how unfair and unloving and unkind God is. So they're not gonna have anything to do with it. And I would say we can flip that right around and say, you know what, you are right. He is the most unfair 
thing ever, but not in the way that you're thinking about it. He's unfair in the fact that when we stink to high heaven with sin, he wraps his arms around us and willingly lets it get smeared all over him. And then the son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm not worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a servant. And the dad doesn't say, you know what? You're right. You don't deserve to be called my son, which was fair. That's what he should have said. It would have been fair for him to say, all right, look, I shouldn't let you come home, but I'm going to. And this is how it's going to work. Pay attention because I get to make the rules. Uh, For six months, we're going to put you at the lowest level of the servants. And we're going to give you the dirtiest, most horrible jobs. And if you do them perfectly every single day and don't make a single mistake, then we'll bump you up one level and another six months. And we'll keep bumping you up as long as you do the job perfectly and don't make any mistakes till maybe you can work your way up to being the top servant. But don't talk to me about being a son again because family is out of the question. That would have been fair. That would have been fair. But that's not what he says. Before the son can get any more out, the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe, not just a robe, the best robe in the house, put it on him. I'm sure that there was some cleaning off before that. Not that the son did, but that the father or the servants did. So clean him off, put on the best robe, which means you have honor, Put sandals on his feet, which means you now belong to the family. Family members wore sandals. Servants went barefoot. Get a ring for his finger, which means he has the authority of being part of the family. And kill the calf that we have been fattening because we are going to throw a party to end all parties ever. We have the most, well, first of all, we have the only true God. There's no other God except our God. But he is the most unfair God that there is because none of us deserves anything from him. Because all of us have stood and said, look, it would be easier if you weren't part of my life, so I just would like that piece, please, and see you later. I'm going to take charge of this. We've all done that. And I suspect that many people in this room, maybe most people, have finally come to their senses at some point and said, the life I've made for myself is terrible. Back home, back home is someone who loves me. But if you never have had that experience, the invitation to go home is always there. And I imagine that when the father wrapped his arms around his son and embraced him and kissed him, that while his mouth was near his son's ear, he said, welcome home. I've been waiting for a very long time. Welcome home. At the end of Voyage of the Dawn Treader, after Eustace has been undragoned, the narrator says this. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. 
To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But yes, he began to change. The cure had begun. And this would be my question for you today. Have you stepped into the cure that God offers us? Have you gone home knowing that home is better, 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 better than the best thing we could imagine away from home? And have you felt your father's arms or the arms of Christ when he's on the cross wrap around you and willingly take all of your and yours and yours and my stink all over him because that's how unfair he is. See, that's a really good story. That's a really good story. And you know what the first line of that story looks like? And you know how compelling that story is. And I would hope that it's a story that everyone in this room is living and enjoying. And to anybody who's not living and enjoying it, here's the great thing. Anybody can live and enjoy it because it's everybody's story who wants it to be. Let me pray. Dear Lord, the best news of all is that you love us, but also that you are unfair. Because if you were fair, none of us would be here. I pray, Lord, that if we haven't ever experienced the wonderful joy of your arms embracing us, that we would experience that. And I pray that if we experienced that long ago, or last year, or last month, that we would never, ever forget what it is like to have your arms wrapped around us, taking our sin onto you, and hearing you whisper into our ears, welcome home. I have been waiting a very long time. Thank you for letting us come home, Lord. Thank you for loving us when we are a mess. Thank you for cleaning us off, giving us new clothes, and making us new people. And thank you that as new people, we are not new people by ourselves, but we are new people with the family of God. What an undeserved gift. We love you, and we pray these things in the name of your sweet and precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.